0: And uh, we, we meet this evening mm. to take a look at Inyoni, Yom HaKippurim, Chaba Alei Lutovah, just a week away. We're in the very special zone of Ben La L'Ossor, T'in Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. And I'd like to begin by discussing a matter that relates to Yom Kippur. <clears throat> it's a practical... Question in Eretz Yisrael, and by which I mean that uh, the general issue, of course, is uh, applicable uh, all over. But the specific question uh, is of practical relevance in Eretz Yisrael. But of course, things that are of practical relevance in Eretz Yisrael should be of uh, central interest and significance to to Jewish people wherever they are, and it relates to the question of Ne'ilah. And there are two questions that are really rolled together. They are officially two separate questions, but as we'll see, they very much impact each other. And the first is the timing of Ne'ilah. I mean, we know it's the last tefillah of Yom Kippur, but when exactly is the right time for Ne'ilah? And the second relates to the question of Duchening. At So as we know, in Eretz Yisrael, we wear the Duchen every day, so there is also Duchening in Ne'ilah as well. And the reason why these two questions are so closely connected, again, one, the timing of Ne'ilah, two, Duchening, right, Birchas Kohanim, during Ne'ilah, is because the Gemara actually uses the one to answer the other. By which we mean. There is a Yerushalmian Maseches Tanis. Which records actually a machlokas. As to when the ilah should be. We know it's at the end. But how at the end? Well, one opinion, Rabbi Yochanan says. That it should be the end of the day. But still part of the day. Meaning, before sunset. Of the day itself. Whereas the other opinion, Rav, says No. It should actually be the night after. That's a very interesting notion for us. The idea that the correct time for Neilah is actually Motze Yom Kippur. Now, there's much to discuss in terms of the, the, each view for itself, but Tachlis, the Gemara, sides with Rabbi Yochanan, that it really is at the end of Yom Kippur itself, not after Yom Kippur, but at the end of Yom Kippur. And in fact, the Gemara proves it from the issue of birchas Kohanim. How so? Because the Mishnah informs us that when they would do ne'ilah, the Kohanim would Duchen. So, well, says the Yerushalmi, there you have it. Now you know that ne'ilah must yet be during the day of Yom Kippur. Because Duchening can only happen during the day. Albeit it's at the very end of the day, but it still has to be in the day. Why do we say that Duchening can only take place during the day? Why could one not Duchen, for example, in, in Myriv? Well, the Gemara says, you, again, all of this is the Yerushalmi. It says uh, very simply, the Pasuk states with regards to the Kohanim, it describes them as those that Hashem has chosen, lisharso to serve him, ulevarich bishmo, and to bless in his name. Those two things are mentioned together, service, avoda, in the Beis HaMikdash, and ulevaricho bishmo. Now, as we know, there exists a concept where if two ideas are mentioned side by side, they are halachically equated. That is known as a hekash. And therefore, says the Yerushalmi, L'varech b'shmo, birkas koanim is like Havoda. Just like Havoda takes place during the day, so too, duchening takes place during the day. And therefore, to put that all together, <coughs> if there's duchening in the Ne'ilah, and duchening can only take place in the day, then the Ne'ilah obviously also takes place during the day, not the night after Yom Kippur. And that is the ruling of the Shulchan Aruch, that the uh, ni'ila is to take place yet, while it's daytime. The Mishnah Brura mentions an interesting, perhaps one could say, harmonization of the two views, whereby he says there is a minhag to begin in the day and then let it continue post into the night. What's interesting is, before we get back to the Dukhan in question, not everyone concurs. With the Yerushalmi's conclusion that Duchening can only take place during the day. After all, and let's not forget, there is an opinion that the Ila takes place in the nighttime. He must be able to explain the Mishnah. And indeed, the Maharil, who is a very major Ashkenazi uh, force, Halachic and Minhagic, the Maharil says that if the basis of when you can do Duchening is the equation of Birchas Kohanim with Avodah, well, most of the avoda was done during the day, but there was some avoda that was done during the night. The famous in the Ve'ivarim, finishing off, the, putting the limbs from, uh, from the korbanos uh, on the Mizbeach. And therefore, even if we take this hekish, we take this equation and we say, Duchening, it must be like avoda. But there's avoda at night of sorts, so there can be Duchening at night. That's a very interesting counterposition, even within the, the duchening question itself. But be that, be that as it may, the accepted uh, position, as we saw from the Shulchan Aruch, is that indeed, if there is duchening, and when there is duchening, then then, the needs, then it needs to happen before shkia, and that will inform on the time of Nailah. The question then is, practically, what should one do? And what is the background to that question? Because <clears throat> when we say that Duchening needs to take place during the day, it means before Shkia, before sunset. Now, Myriv on Motzayim Kippur is not going to happen at least 20 minutes or 30 minutes even after sunset. That leaves you with quite a gap of time. You had to finish. Chazar sashats, the Chazan's repetition by Shkia in order to get Duchenne in. You're not going to dive in my till a good 20, 30 minutes later. So then what? How does one use that or navigate that uh, situation? And indeed, <coughs> there are three minhagim in this regard. The first, I would say, is not for the faint of heart. But it is done in many communities. This is what they did when I was in yeshiva. I'm not sure if they still, they still do that. And that is, after you finish N'ilah, meaning after you finish Duchening in the ilah, there's still one thing left. Avinu Malkainu. How long does it take to say Avinu Malkenu? Well, it depends. Normally, not too long. There are a few verses that are said responsi- responsively, but it can take two or three minutes, something like that. But it can also take 20 minutes. In other words, if every Avinu Makenu is said responsively and emphatically and in real time, then that is one response to how to get from Shkia to Tzesacho It's with Avinu Makenu, getting acquainted with Avinu Markenu in a way that perhaps one may not have done, uh, certainly to not, not to that degree. <coughs> Uh, until that stage. So that's one, to, to use the time with Avinu Malkeinu. There is another uh, widespread minhag, I believe, <coughs> again, and that is that in the Chazan's repetition there are also Slichos, uh, that is to say there are also the Yud Gimel Midosh HaRachemim, the seven times, that's really the the, the mainstream custom, is seven times each time with something. And that itself can take a good long while. Now, it's in the Chazor sashats. However, it is possible, I mean, one needs to know exactly which parts this can be done, but those, those Yud Gimel the Slichas, can actually be detached and placed after Chazor Sashats. And therefore, they go through the Chazan's repetition, including Duchening. They finish the Chazan's repetition, and then they start with those Slichas. And that as well can take a good amount of time. There is a very interesting psaq of Rup Orbach with regards to this matter, and <coughs> it's as follows. Between, after shkia Sakhama, after the, the sunset, is a time that we call Bein twilight, roughly, we, we, if we would translate. And we treat it already as perhaps perhaps night. However, there is an opinion, and you almost never hear of it, and good. But it's actually a Bedro-Kalachic opinion that even for the 13 and a half minutes after shkia is still really day. The benashmashos actually takes place in the blink of an eye at the end of those 13 um, and a half minutes. So now again, we're always very careful. As soon as it's sunset, that's it. We consider it to be already Ben HaShemashos for purposes of avoiding Isurim. But when it comes to mitzvahs that we otherwise might not be able to do, we do take note of it. And this was the ruling of Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach that it is possible to continue with the Chazaras Hashatz and do duchening until 13 and a half minutes after shkia, something that you'd almost never hear about, certainly in mainstream Ashkenazi circles uh, in any other setting. That was his psak, but it wasn't his entire response. And I think there's a lot to learn from the full response of Rup Shlomo Zalman So with regards to how long after Shkia does one have for Duchening, says Rup Shlomo Zalman, it's uh, 13 and a half minutes, which can make a big difference, because then you're really just a few minutes away from, f- from finishing up and that one doesn't need to elongate or delay in any way for So, it's, it's a major uh, breakthrough. But then Rup Shlomo says something else. And that is, it's true. You have these 13 and a half minutes for duchening. And if you duchen within that time, good. And if not, then it's too late. But the ila should not be focused around duchening before those 13 and a half minutes. In his words, the chazan's eyes during the ilah should be in the masr, not on the clock. Which means the main thing at this juncture is to daven the ila as best you can. And if the davening takes you past the 13, and you and then you're not able to duchen, so then you're not able to duchen. You'll have duchen earlier that day. But it can't be that the only thing that people are thinking about during the eila is when are we going to get to duchen? Is it going to be? Perhaps one could say that the, the, the gabai can think about that, but maybe the gabai should also be thinking about in the Elah. So this was his, and there's a lot of chinuch, as is often the case with the Reb Shlomo Zalman's psakim that as much as he, he'll, he'll tell you the answer, but it'll also give you a way to, to look at things. In other words, it can't just be... The, the definition of Ne'ilah is not the tefillah that we try and finish between four to thirteen and a half minutes after sunset. I mean, that, there's more, there has to be more to say about Ne'ilah than that, and, and, and that should be the focus. It uh, uh, brings to mind, very similar, but again, it's a whole... It, it, it's Chinuch in psak. <coughs> Someone uh, once came to Yerushalayim Orbach, And he asked him uh, a question that relates to people who are at the kotel, davening at the kotel. So, as we know, at the kotel there's many, many minyanim, and you've got your minion, Uh, but there's a minion to the right, and a minion to the left, and in front, and behind. So the question is, you know, when when one hears certain things in the davening, you're meant to respond. You hear Kaddish, you're meant to respond. You hear Kaddusha, you're meant to respond. So the questioner asked, what should I do if I'm davening uh, at, at the Kotel? And then I hear from another minion that they're saying kedusha or Kaddish. So but it's not my minion, but but I did hear it. So. Uh, you know, should I respond, do I have to respond, Etc. and so yes. forth. And there's many, there's, many uh, there's much to discuss about that. But the first thing that Shlomo Salman said to him is, if you're davening in your minion, why are you hearing something from a different minion? I mean, what's that got to do with you? You're, you're with your minion. You shouldn't, you, sh- you shouldn't be hearing anything else. So uh, that's, how, of course, how Islam Zaman would be. Uh, and he's just reminding people that it's not just this kaleidoscopic uh, experience where you, where you hear everything. You should be focused on what's in front of you, daven with your minion. And, uh, and then, of course... What, whatever the answer to that was, he then explained what you should do. But, but not without, again, that, that drop of chinuch in that way. So these are, are very interesting, really, halacha questions with regards to Ne'ilah. Um, again, as we said in, in Eret Yisrael, we began with Ne'ilah. I'd like to come back to ni'ilah. but But before that, I would like to move on to actually discuss an aspect of the laning, on Yom Kippur morning, and by the laning I mean the Kriya and the Haftorah, something from each. And they're both, interestingly, from Meshach Chochma, although he does not discuss them in the same place, or even in the same Parsha, but I believe very, very um, profound ideas <coughs> for us to ponder. And the first relates to, to the laning for Yom Kippur morning, and as we know, the leining is the avodah sheim kippurim It's the beginning of Parsha Acharemos, which goes through the whole thing. Ve'lavashah Aron, Ve'hiza, and and he'll do this, and he'll do that. The special avodah of Yom Kippur is discussed in the beginning of Acharemos. But before we get to the <coughs> the special avodah, there is a posuk of introduction. It's from Acharemos. Acharemos what, or Acharemos who? It's Acharemos shenei bnei Aaron. The, the lead-in or the background to this whole discussion of how Aaron can and can't, and when he can and can't, go into the Holy of Holies and do the special Avoda, which leads into Yom Kippur, it was all um, triggered, it, historically, on a basic level, by the death of Nadav and Avihu, who tried to go into the Kodesh Hakodashim, and it wasn't appropriate. The conditions weren't appropriate. The time wasn't right, and etc. and so forth. And they were punished. And as a, and ap, apropos of that punishment, comes the discussion of how it should be done. So that's very interesting, because one of the first uh, sets of names that we hear on Yom Kippur morning is the sons of Aharon. Now, as we said. It's possible to relate to that as, as incidental, as if to say, it's really just technical, it's background, they died, and, and, and that leads into this discussion. But it doesn't really have that much to do with me on Yom Kippur. It's possible to think that. However, the Zohar is famous for saying that the two sons of Yom Kippur, are, pardon me, the two sons of Aaron are very much connected to Yom Kippur. And, and go so far as to say that it is proper and correct on Yom Kippur morning, when you hear those words, a person should mourn the passing, should grieve the passing of, uh, of Aaron's two sons, of Nodav and of And that, of course, if we wish to take that seriously, as we should, requires a lot of contemplation. Why is it important to mourn the, the death of the sons of Aaron? And moreover, how is one meant to go about doing that? In other words, we're, we're, we're sorry that they died, but we're not grieving over them over anyone else, more than anyone else, or why should we? Why is this so important? In other words, the Zohar is saying, it's the, cons- it's the thematic introduction to the Yom Kippur laning it's the death of Aaron's sons. It's not incidental, it's core. But how is it relevant at all? And this question is not, is not raised by the Meshachachma, but I believe it will be answered by something that he says. Because Meshachachma and Pasha Shemini discusses the, the death itself of Aaron's sons it's a it's a mystery it's very easy just to say oh they did the wrong thing and they deserved it and that's what happens but it's not so easy to certainly the way the posse describes it very mild terms they offered a foreign fire that they weren't commanded even after you figure out what that means it doesn't sound like it was such a a terrible thing and moreover Moshe says to Aaron uh, by way of comforting him Hashem said that he would be sanctified through those who were close to him. And I thought that that might even be me or you. But now I see that in some respects, your sons are greater than me and you. So it's not a a one-dimensional thing, crime and punishment. There's something about these uh, two individuals that reflects their closeness to Hashem, through which he's sanctified through them. And how does that go together with the fact that they did something wrong? And what what does any of this have to do with, with Yom Kippur? So, Meshach says that, again, as we've described briefly, it's hard to see that the sin of Nadav and Avihu was really, really such a grave thing. However, what happened to them was of such enormous impact for the Jewish people, it cannot be overestimated. And here's why. What day is that day? It's the opening day of the Mishkan, the inaugural day. This is the day when everything the Jewish people are officially, fully forgiven, rehabilitated, reinstated, and everything is to the extent that it can be as it was before they sinned with the Cheta Ega. Now, this is very interesting because, in a sense, you could say it is our first national day of Kapara. It's the first time the Jewish people are experiencing, as a people, we've been atoned for our sin. So, beginnings are very delicate things. The first time something happens, if it's not understood correctly, it can be misconstrued, misused, and abused. And never more so than the concept of kapora, of atonement, whereby a person was in grave danger and really in the wrong, at great peril, yet somehow they were able to get out of it through Kaporah. What is the, the hazard here? What's the danger? The danger is, and again, this is the first time the Jewish people have ever done anything wrong as a nation Was the golden calf, and the, and the first time they'd ever been uh, uh, forgiven for it was now, through the Mishkan, beginning with the Kippur, then culminating in the Mishkan. And where is the danger? The danger is that if everything's okay again, one may very simply conclude, or the people could conclude, that maybe there wasn't really such a great danger to begin with. After all, here we are, and everything's okay. In other words, if ever something negative happens and then is redressed by something positive, it can it can be indicative of one of two things: either the enormous effect of that positive thing to, to, to repair such terrible damage, or alternatively, maybe it wasn't such great damage. I mean, we did it. I mean, we undid it. Children often often are have no idea how much danger they were potentially in, so that when they're they're taken out of it and everything's okay and their parents are, are at their at their wit's end. And the child doesn't realize what all the fuss is about. Every, everything's fine. It's, it's, a, it's a very basic way of, of looking at things. And that could happen with their, with their kapara. And if, if the Jewish people ever respond to the fact that they were redeemed, pardon me, uh, forgiven for the golden calf, by saying, oh, well, then I guess the golden calf wasn't such a big deal in the first place, that will be a rupture in their basic relationship with mitzvahs and avirus And Shuva, by the way. Because they'll do what they want and they probably won't even do tshuva properly because they don't even think that the the Avera is so so significant. So this formative atonement time is crucial. It is critical that the Jewish people understand in no uncertain terms that the sin they did is a very big deal. But tshuva is a bigger deal. That's the moral of the story. But without tshuva, there's a lot of danger in sin. There should be no misapprehension. How can this be impressed upon them? Says Meshachachma, it is specifically through the death of of Nadav and at this time. And again, through the full force of absolute midasadim, the attribute of judgment, we can't even uh, presume to to, to speak on its behalf. And perhaps then they were deserving of that punishment. But certainly not in in our experience, we would have expected much room for clemency or uh something patience compassion mitigation but none was shown to teach the jewish people what to teach them that even a small sin is a very big deal don't ever think that it, it doesn't really make a difference remember not of an you. it made a difference to them which means that as you now go forward as the Jewish people, with the concept of tshuva, understood that you need tshuva, because without tshuva, the danger is, yes, grave, but tshuva can fix it. The pa- in other words, the power of tshuva is gr- is greater than the danger you're in, but without it, you're, let- you're just, left- just left with that danger, that the concept of tshuva should not be abused. And that's why Moshe said, Something like this was, was in the wings to happen, and it could only happen by someone who's close to Hashem, who we presume would be prepared to, 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 to offer their life for the well-being of the Jewish people, said, Moshe, I thought it would be me and you to Aaron. I see they're greater. They were the ones that were chosen. This is the analysis of the Mishachachma to, to, to the death of Nadav and Avihu. Certainly much to think about. And, what, and coming back to Yom Kippur, what does it mean for us? I think this is the reason why the Zohar says that, that when, you, when you just hear the mention of the death of another and of you, should, you should feel sad. Why should you feel sad? We didn't know them. They died a long time ago. And I'm sorry, but I'm not, I'm not extremely sorry. I'm not, I'm not in mourning. But says the Zohar, but maybe you should be because they died for a reason. They died so that the Jewish people shouldn't make a mistake about shuvah, shouldn't misuse and be, be flippant about it, because it's because sin and repentance are a very serious business. So why should a person mourn? Because if a person thinks, well, maybe that's the type of mistake that I would have made. Maybe I wouldn't have been so deep in my vision. Maybe I would have thought, oh, you do a sin, and then you do shuvah, and it's all okay, and it's never really such a big problem in the first place. Maybe it's for people like me that not of you were killed. And, th- and that's, that's a very sobering thought. And not only is it, in a sense, cause for grieving, but really that's the moment in the laning where, where we need to, be, to, to f- affirm our resolve that we will not make the mistake, that, that their deaths should, should lead to us getting it right. You know, the moral of the story is, Anything we've done wrong, which, which, which we shouldn't have done, it's a serious business. There's work called chuva that can fix it, but that's also serious work. And that sets the tone of the leaning for Yom Kippur. It's what seems to be an incidental background really, in a sense, is the, is the conceptual um, canvas for the, for, for the whole of the concept of, of chuva that we're working at on, on that day. So this is... Um, using, in a sense, the, the comment of the Meshachachma in Parsha Shmini about Nadav and Aviyu. But from there, I would like to go to a comment that the Meshachachma himself makes, meaning overtly, about Yom Kippur. And it's in Parsha Zacharymos. And it's about the Haftarah. And I think it's fair to say that even if a person preserves their alertness for the, uh, for the Avodah of Yom Kippur, and they're familiar with it, the, the different steps, and it, it's easier to follow. But Haftarahs are, are generally not as easy to follow as, as the laning in the Torah. And if it's not overtly connected to the, like, you know, Chana on the first day of, uh, of, of Rosh Hashanah, where it's, where it's, it's, it's a narrative, quote-unquote, and easy to, uh, to, to relate to, then in a sense the, the Haftarah can sometimes um, elude us, so what is the Haftaraphyam Kippur morning? And why is it the Kippur morning? Well, it's from the Navi Yeshaya, Perik Nun Zayin, right? Yeshaya chapter 57. <coughs> and it starts, V'Amar Solu Solu. And probably, I think, the simplest understanding of why it is chosen as the Haftaraphyam Kippur is because it, it voices on the part of the people saying that we fast and you don't seem to care, or you don't seem to listen. It doesn't seem to help us. To which Hashem's response is, yeah, because it doesn't make a difference to you, and you just continue to do all the things that you were doing anyway, so that's not really what, what we're talking about. These are the, uh, what do they say? Lama this is already into Perik Nunches, chapter 58. You say, Lamatzamnu tzamnu, ra'isa. We're fasting, you don't seem to notice. Right? We afflict ourselves, and it seems like you don't, you don't even realize. To which, to which Hashem says, because, because again, every, even during your fast days, you're still doing whatever you want to do, and you're still arguing with each other, and you're still oppressing people, and, and that's not really what a tzom is. And, and then it goes on to detail what a, what a tzom should look like. And that, I think, is the simplest understanding of why this is the Haftorah for Yom Tzom Kippur. What, what should a Tzom look like? Okay. Um, so, so it shouldn't be that uh, you know, everyone's fasting and then a fight breaks out over who knows what, you know, who got uh, maftir or who got psicha uh, for na'ila or whatever it is. But there is something else. There is something else. And Rubmer Simcha, the Meshachachma, he he. he he discusses it, and then he uh, wishes to demonstrate that it's explicit in the Gemara, his, the connection that he's going to make. He begins by saying as follows. We know <coughs> that there's, there are many unique features about the Avoda of Yom Kippur, but principle among them is that there is a certain domain that, one ent- that the Kohen God, one, the Kohen God will enters enters uh, on, on Yom Kippur that he can never enter on any other day of the year and that is the Kodesh Hakodoshim, the holy of holies what's called lev leflim the inner sanctum inside the inside it's the innermost point of the beis hamikdash nothing is there except for the aron and 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 you, he never goes in there but on this one day he goes in and he does certain avoda the blood of certain uh, carbonus it's sprinkled the katoris is brought there and it becomes part of the part of the avoda how are we to relate to the uniqueness of this phenomenon, the uniqueness of the idea that some of the Avoda takes place in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. So to answer that question, we need to ask the prior question, why is there generally never Avoda in the Kodesh HaKadoshim? And again, one could say very simply, well, it's, that's, the, that's the private premises. It's not appropriate. One shouldn't go there. And if you can't go there, how can there be talk of anything else? It's a, the question becomes... Um, ended at that point. You, if you can't enter, so then how could you think about doing Avodah there? But the Meshachachma says differently. He says, and it's based on numerous sources, the idea is echoed <coughs> in a number of places, that really, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us, the Beis Hamikdash is like a representation of of Hashem's presence in this world. But Hashem's presence itself has different manifestations. In other words, it has... Very external manifestations. In other words, the, the influence that comes from Hashem, the forces that emanate from Hashem. But then, of course, the closer you get to the source itself, so then the closer you are really, to the extent that we can, you're talking about Hashem himself. So now the question is Avoda, divine service, making a difference what can you make a difference to what can the koan with their carbonos and with their manova and 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 so on and so forth what can they really affect so we'll appreciate that the the further away something emanates from hashem it's a force that comes from him but as a force one can interact with it and perhaps even influence it whether that, that force is the rain i mean rainfall is it's a it's a it's a phenomenon it originates initially with Hashem, but by the time we get it, it's rain. Can a person uh, somehow be of influence to the rain? Yes. Look in the second parasha of Shema. If you keep the mitzvahs, then the rain will come in its time. And if not, then it won't. So here is the Jew, even the Jewish people as a whole uh, interacting with and being of influence on a force that emanates from Hashem but of course the closer and closer that you go in and the more you're not talking about things that emanate but you're really just talking about Hashem himself so there isn't really what to influence and that's why because you can't influence Hashem himself that's why all of the avoda and the beis midrash takes place in the outer courtyard and then even some aspects of the avoda in the in the sanctuary but never inside the inside. Because all of those other domains, they represent things that emanate from Hashem. And you can, you can impact them, but you can never impact Hashem himself. So there's never a Voda in the Kodesh HaKadoshim where the, where the Auron representing the Divine Presence itself is. That is the situation as it pertains throughout the year. And then comes Yom Kippur. And what happens on Yom Kippur? Hashem lets the Kohen Gadol into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. But what is he doing? He's not just granting him a private audience, which is, which is profound enough. But it's more than that. What Hashem is saying is, on this day, I wish for you to relate even to me, myself, again, as close as we can say that, that uh, what's representing the Kodesh HaKadoshim, even that is Hashem himself. But it's closer than anything else. And I want you to perform avoda there, because even, even I am affected and appreciative of your avoda. Even I, not just the forces that come out from me, but even me myself, says Hashem. That is the full impact of the concept of, of doing avoda in a place where there is only Hashem Himself. And what does this represent? says Meshachach, what are we seeing here? Because it's not true. In other words, you cannot affect Hashem himself. So what is Hashem doing by having the Kohen relate to him as if if he is impacting Hashem? What is that? That is Hashem's humility. In other words, the reality is there's nothing anyone can do that will affect Hashem himself. However, Hashem in his humility says, I'd like you to do I'd like you to to, to do the avoda before me directly. It will make a difference. It will make a difference to me. So he's taking the infinitely transcendent and the beyond and making it very accessible. And that is that really is the, the deeper understanding of what, what what it means that there is avoda in the Kodeshakadoshem Anyam Kippur. So? So says Meshachachma, and that is why we read the chapter that we do in Yeshaya as the Haftorah. Because it brings out this point. How so? The verses that we read before about the people are complaining, we're fasting, you don't notice, and you don't care, and Hashem says you're not really fasting, that's more in the second half of the Haftorah. It's deeper in. But within one posuk, we read the following. And if you're familiar with the verses or the, with the sections that we say on Motzei Shabbos, you will recognise this. What does it say? Rambanisa, so says Hashem, elevated and exalted, Ad dwells forever, his name is, is is holy. I dwell with that which is elevated and holy. But also the esdaka ushva ruach but also with those who are broken and those who are are lowly with spirit. I'm with them also. They're all the way down there, and I'm down there with them. (laughs) To revive the spirit of those who are low. (laughs) And those who are downtrodden and oppressed. Those two psukim, the contrast between them is bedafka, meaning the first pasuk is Hashem infinitely exalted. The second Postgres says, But he's right down there with the oppressed and the downtrodden. And what do we learn from there? There's a famous Gemara in Megillah, Daf Kavches. And again, those who say Vyitilakha, the section on Matze Shabbos will be familiar with this. <coughs> Wherever you find Hashem's greatness, Sham Atamotse and there you find his humility. And this, this Gemara is famous for being one of those ideas which the Gemara goes on to say, you find it in the Chumash, in the Nevi'im, and in the Ksuvin. Kasuv Torah, Shani Mishulash And it brings the source in the Torah. But what's the source in the Nevi'im? It's these verses. Which begins with Gedulasa shalakadosh Baruch Hu Hashem's greatness, and immediately moves into Amvisanusa. He's there, he's there for the, for the individual who's oppressed, who's who's lowly, of spirit, etc., needs uplifting. So, says Meshachach, so the Haftorah, the theme of the Haftorah from the very beginning is Hashem's humility. And that's why it's the Haftorah of Yom Kippur. Because there is, Yom Kippur is the day where this is expressed in the extreme. How? By allowing our voters to take place In the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Here is Hashem infinitely beyond anything that that a person can impact. And Hashem says, please do the Avodah. For me, it will make a difference. What is that? That's Hashem lowering himself. As ki'ilu, that the actions of man make a difference to him himself. And that's the the theme of the opening of Torah. And the reason why I think that's the Torah, says Meshach Ochma, is because where is the source of this idea that where you find Hashem's greatness, you find his humility, where does that all come from? From Megillah daf What's it doing in in Masechah's Megillah daf Because that's where the Gemara is discussing the Haftorahs for the Yomim Tovim. And as soon as the Gemara says the Haftorah for Yom Kippur morning is this Perik in Yeshaya, it immediately brings the statement of Rabbi Yochanan. Wherever you find Hashem's greatness, there you'll find His humility. Says Meshachachma, this isn't just Rabbi Rechonan saying, oh, when will I ever get another chance to talk to you about, uh, about this? So let's let's shtup uh, it with in this, now and chaperayim with this great Dvar Torah. No, it's not mentioned apropos of the Haft Torah. It is mentioned as the reason behind the Dvar, the, the Torah. That's really, in other words, no sooner the, have we said, the Haftorah for Yom Kippur morning is this peric and Rabbi Yochanan brings in the of Hashem's greatness and his humility because he's telling you, because that's why it's the Haftorah, because that's what Yom Kippur is all about. Adkan from the words of Meshachachma. And what I suggest perhaps is, is, is yet left to be said is, although perhaps maybe it's just so clearly that it didn't need to be said by the Chachma, is why of all days is, is Yom Kippur the day that through the Avodah Hashem demonstrates his humility. And we see it through the Avodah, but, but why of all days? I think the answer is, is very simple. And that is because that's what Yom Kippur is all about, even beyond the Avodah within the Ves HaMikdash, which on this day takes place inside the inside, even beyond that. The whole of Yom Kippur is about Hashem atoning for the Jewish people. Attorney for the Jewish people, who over the course of the year have been repeatedly ignoring him, affronting him, offending him, uh, violating his words, not the whole time, but, but, but a good amount of the time. And and now they're sorry. And we all know ourselves, really, L'hafda, what it's like if a person has uh, offended us uh, you know, so many times, sometimes even once we'll do it, but certainly if they're a repeat offender, and, 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 then, and now they come, it's... There's, there's issues here. It's a covert issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a matter of honor. It's a matter of dignity, and, and which are watchwords for, for, for ego and uh, pride. So then take that and multiply that by infinity, and then Hashem is infinitely exalted, and, and along come the Jewish people with the years' worth of, of ignoring and offending him, and they'd like, they'd like him to forgive them. And Hashem says, okay. And not only does Hashem says, okay, he's the one that set Yom Kippur up in the first place. He, has, he initiated a day for everyone. I will be there, says Hashem. You just need to turn up. Whatever you've done over the last year, none of you would ever take it, but I will. And, and, and we'll work it all out. So in other words, the whole essence of Yom Kippur, the whole kapara of Yom Kippur, has Hashem's infinite humility running through it the whole time. And therefore it's expressed uh, avodically, it's expressed by the Avoda in the, in the, uh, in the Kodesh HaKadoshin. And it's, ex- it's explicated further and amplified in the Haftorah. But it really starts with the very concept of Kaporah itself. And I believe perhaps there's room to add <coughs> that if Yom Kippur is a day to appreciate Hashem's humility in, 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 in forgiving us, so maybe there's an implicit message for us that we could take a bit of that in terms of approaching him. Because Hashem exercises more humility in forgiving us than we do in asking for forgiveness. That's also a matter of pride. It's also a matter of ego. It's also a matter of stubbornness, whereby we like, we like to think that we always do the right thing, to admit that one made a mistake is, is not so easy. And that's really where chuva begins with that, that, that epiphany. It's not even an epiphany, It's, it's, it's because it's, it's an emotional breakthrough. It's not a, a, disco- a discovery of understanding. It's there the whole time, but we're just not prepared to make that switch and say, I made a mistake, and I'm sorry, and, 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 and please, will you forgive me? That requires its own dose of humility. But, but what that means is the enemy of tshuva, because en- Yom Kippur is the day of tshuva, what's the enemy of tshuva? The enemy of tshuva is not sin, I mean, sin is the beginning of Tshuva. I mean, that's done already. So what's the enemy of Tshuva? The enemy of Tshuva is is stubbornness and and conceit and hubris and ego and pride and all of those things. So who's going to help us? Because Nebuch, we need help. Who's going to help us? Hashem says, I'll help you. Today is a day of humility. Look what I'm prepared to do for you. So maybe you can also do a little bit. If Hashem is prepared to ex- exercise infinite humility from on high, from up there, then maybe we can exercise a, a bit of humility from down here. And if we do, we're on the way. And then we meet in the middle, and then Yom Kippur can happen. So this is a very um, wonderful and, I believe, meaningful way of relating to that aspect of the avoda and what it says about Yom Kippur from Hashem's point of view, from Hashem's part and also uh, hopefully from our part as well. We speak about uh, entering just some final thoughts as to 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 accompany us uh, in, in in the days ahead but we speak about the Kohen Godal entering Lefnai Lefnim, what's called the holy of holies is called Lefnaiva Lefnim, inside the inside. And there's another element to this, and I believe it ties in, uh, dovetails really very beautifully with uh, what we were discussing last week about Rosh Hashanah, about the Akedah, what it says. Rosh Hashanah is a day of identity and and, and how how we're prepared to identify ourselves. And that's how it begins when we're being judged on Rosh Hashanah. But as we move from judgment to atonement, and of course, they're connected, but they're not the same. So the concept of identity is equally crucial. And to understand why, we need to look at the concept of kapora itself. We translate the word kapora as atonement, and as translations go, it's not bad. But, what kap- but to understand how kapora works, we need to go to its Root meaning. The root meaning of kapara is actually discussed by Rashi in Parshas Vayishlach way before Yom Kippur ever came on the scene. And Rashi explains that the word l'chaper means to wipe something away. And that is a very profound, not surprisingly, statement. Because <clears throat> you can only wipe something away if it, if it is extrinsic to the thing you're wiping it away from. And it's there on the surface. If something has managed to insinuate itself into the fabric of of, of something else, there's no wiping away. It's not a distinct entity. It's through and through. dyed in the wool. So where does Kapara begin? Where is the ability that things are wiped away? Where does that start? It starts by us being prepared to take our mistakes and see them as things that are extrinsic to us, external to us. And this itself also, some, some of our mistakes are quite beloved to us. We have sentimental connections with them. We may have idealized some of them, which makes it difficult to back down from and say, but no, that's, that is not me, and it doesn't define me, and it doesn't become me. It's something that I'm carrying. I do not absolve myself of responsibility for this act, but I do not identify with it. And if you, and if you can take away something that that's not me, so then please take it away. What we need, the, what, what vidui is, and it's very interesting uh, for what it's worth, we talk about vidui as expressing something in, in speech. But expressing means to bring it to the outside. That's what it means to express. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking it and saying, I did it. I'm not saying I didn't do it, but I, but I do not identify with it. And it's, I would like to leave it to be collected and removed. And, and that's, what, that's what's demanded of us. And that's why so much of Yom Kippur is about going inside the inside, because it, it brings a person back to where they are at core, and what they really want, and not what all the layers in between their core and their deeds want, which could be manifold and uh, and distracting. And therefore, when the Kohen Gadol goes inside the inside, in the Kodesh Hakodashim and Yom Kippur, that's a geographical location, but it represents, experientially, the Jewish people's ability to, to relate to and identify with who they are inside the inside. And things that do not check out with that, to, to express them. That is a very um, fundamental understanding of what kapara means, to be wiped away. If it's, if it's extrinsic to me, it can be wiped away. There is a uh, there's a Hasidic uh, tale. I heard this actually from from Rav Tursky, from uh, uh, A.J. Uh, Tursky. Uh, that's out a number of years ago, and it is said that the Balshemtov he was there in Yom Kippur, wherever he was, and he uh, he sees this poshut a Jew, and it's it's Neila. Pardon me, it's, it's, it's Vidui, and and he's singing the Vidoy. and it's interesting that it's it's a kind of a universal custom is to sing the vidui, which is not an intuitive thing at all. So and he he asks him, you know, I see, Rabbi, you're you're singing vidui. Why are you singing? To which the to which this posture the Jew says that like, when I take out the trash, I normally sing. That's, that's what's happening in vidui. We're basically uh, identifying things that really are... They, it's, t- it's time for them to go. And they shouldn't have been here in the first place, but we're not as devoted to them uh, as we perhaps once were. And we realize that they need to be thrown out. And when you throw out the garbage, so, uh, so some people like to sing. And that's the, that's the Avoda of vidui. And again, I think cer- certainly something that uh, uh, can, can be very... Meaningful as we, as we go through the and we, we, we're seeking Kapara. Yom Kippur in its own way, like Rosh Hashanah, is first and foremost a day of identity. If you know who you are, you can deal with what you've done. Because you have to know which of the things you've done are part of who you are and which of them are just things that you've done and which you're prepared to say goodbye to. And Akhar advarim if we can come back to neila which is where we started, but fitting also to, to end with Ni'ilah. And what's very interesting about Ni'ilah, aside from the, 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 the halachic understanding of what Ni'ilah is, not just when it's said, but, but what is it? No other Yom has this fifth filler except for Yom Kippur. And there's much to talk about that. But what's very interesting is that the, the tshuva content within Ni'ilah also differs from from the other Tfillas. In other words, and, and in fact if if it's the first time you ever do naila, you can get a bit of a shock. And even the second or third time, because we're conditioned through Mairiv and shachris and Musaf and Mincha, and We know, we know what the video looks like and we know the structure and we know the the, the flow and then and then, then is not like that. By which we mean that the the defining Paragraphs of Naila, the distinctive paragraphs of Naila, are those two long paragraphs where we start to talk about Shuva. We say, Atahib Delta Enosh uh, rosh," right? You set man up, you know man can make mistakes. But 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 if he does tshuva, you make it possible for him. And then the next is atah no la Poshim and you help people. And via chapshut, your arm is always, uh, is is your hand is always outstretched to receive people in tshuva. And we have these these really are the the unique paragraphs to ne'ilah. And on a certain level, it's very interesting that we do this because. These are our final moments of Yom Kippur. However you, wherever you time your Ni'ilah, Tachlis, this is the final opportunity on Yom Kippur itself. The opportunity to do what? To do tshuva. So what, could one argue, is the best way to spend those final few moments? Doing tshuva. And yet, we spend a lot of that time talking about tshuva. It's very interesting. In other words, we, we stand there saying, you know, it's amazing that you, that you, 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 you let people do tshuva. And it is amazing, but you, but you might want to do it. And not just stand there saying how amazing it is and miss the opportunity. Most other opportunities, if the opportunity comes, seize it. Don't just stand there talking about it. But that's what we seem to do in the ila And why? And I believe that part of the answer is based on Two types of tshuva, and we've, we're familiar with them, no doubt, as as concepts. We have to find out what they mean. There is a concept of of tshuva meyira, tshuva out of fear, tshuva induced by by fear, and then there's tshuva meava, tshuva out of love. And the Gemara says amazing things about uh, tshuva out of love. If a person does tshuva out of fear, which is the lower level, so. Is a veerus that the sting is taken out of them, but they don't completely disappear. If he does tshuva out of love, it's they become mitzvahs. I mean, you can't imagine what, what happens if he does this uh, this higher level of tshuva. And later, meforshim and poskim uh, even more extol the greatness of tshuva me'ava, which leads us to a very simple question, namely, what is tshuva me'ava? Because if we translate it literally, we're in danger of never doing it. And all of those great praises that we hear about it will be irrelevant because it's never going to happen. If we say that a person's tshuva mi'ava is, is motivated by his love for Hashem, I don't know that that describes typically the type of person that, that needs to do tshuva. Like if he loves Hashem so much, how come he did all those averas? So, so where is this love coming from? Out of the blue? It's nice to have it, but most people you know, in that stage that's probably not their priority. So it's almost like the key to this higher level is inaccessible to your, to your average person. So why talk about it? It's just this thing that's, that's dangling in front of him and, and, and he'll never get it. But he should at least be comforted in the fact that maybe someone else does. So what is Tshuva Based on uh, the writings of Rabitzler Petterberger, Rabitzler Glazer, the, the Talmud of Rabitzler Salanter, uh, I came to understand as follows. chuva out of love is chuva out of appreciation. In other words, what motivates a person to do chuva? So if it's because they don't want to be in trouble, which is a very natural instinct and in itself, it's, it's better than not caring. So they don't want to be in trouble. They want to get themselves out of danger. That's chuva miura. And why would a person do tshuva? Because otherwise they'd be in trouble. But there's another way to approach tshuva. And that is to appreciate the fact that Hashem constantly makes it available. In other words, you, you can't believe it. Here we've done what we've done, whatever it is. And, and Hashem says, whatever, whatever it may have been, I'm always here. And you can always do tshuva. And tshuva me'ava starts by a person looking at that and saying, wow, I can't believe it. You know what? I've I've got to do tshuva. I mean, if you're still here, making it available, that alone is reason to do tshuva. And it's a different relationship altogether. And that is tshuva me'ava. I believe that the reason why these final... Moments of Ni'ilah are spent in appreciation of tshuva. And of course, don't forget to do tshuva, but their in appreciation of tshuva is to ensure that no one leaves Yom Kippur without doing tshuva me'ahva. Whatever your motivation may have been over the course of the day, myriv, Shachrez, musaf, Mincha, everyone has their... their, Ideas and plans, and the reason why they, they, they do the things they do, and uh, it's natural to want to get out of trouble, and it's acceptable, etc., and so forth. Comes Ne'il and says, This whole thing has to be elevated. Don't leave Yom Kippur without appreciating Tshuva. And that we do with those two paragraphs. We basically say to Hashem, We can't believe it, it's unbelievable every year and you reach out first and you know that it's difficult for us and etc and so forth, you're always there. Here we are. Here we are in Tshuva. We can't not respond to that. And that is Tshuva Me'Avah. And that is how the uh, the Yom Kippur ends. And maybe that's a, that's another reason why, in a sense, throughout right, throughout the day of Yom Kippur. But certainly, it all comes to a head in, in you know the singing of, of vidui. It's really because it's like a song. It's a song of just kind of getting back together again. And uh, as much as the subject is slightly uh, r- rough, but uh, but nonetheless, but certainly by neila, neila is is an appreciation of tshuva. And tshuva done to appreciation is tshuva me'ava. And so. We should uh, <coughs> we should merit to connect with these themes, with the other themes that we know, each one uh, in a way that, that that speaks to us, and to make use of the day where Hashem is basically is, is there with arms outstretched, uh, waiting to receive us in shuvah. We should return in b'tshuva shleima, b'tshuva me'afa and we together with all the Beis Yisrael, for a year. Of Besorah's tovus Yeshua's Venechomos, a year of Simcha la Arzecha vsoson and Besorah's uh, tovus for all. All the very best in a Gemarcha Sima Tova. We will meet again in Mitz Hashem in three weeks' time. Next week is Yom Kippur, the week after is Sukkot, so we will again meet Mitz Hashem the Monday before Parshas Bracious. Until then, wish you all the very best in a